Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming Dustin Kirkland to the show. Dustin is a Chief Product Officer at Apex Clearing. As Chief Product Officer, Dustin is responsible for defining the vision and evolving the strategy of Apex's product portfolio. His team of product managers interface with Apex customers and Apex engineers on a daily basis, ensuring quality, excellence, completeness, and timely delivery of the Apex product roadmap. Prior to Apex, Dustin led a key Google Cloud product initiative, bringing Kubernetes into the enterprise data center, helping some of the world's largest banks modernize their aging infrastructure. Dustin also spent a decade at Canonical as an engineer, product manager, and VP of product creating the Ubuntu Server Linux distribution and associated commercial offerings. Dustin was also the CTO and Chief Architect of Gazang, a venture-funded startup acquired by Cloudera, which provided data encryption and key management services to regulate healthcare and financial institutions. Dustin started his career at IBM, building some of the fundamental Linux security functionality that enabled IBM to bring Red Hat Enterprise Linux to Wall Street and the enterprise. Dustin graduated magna cum laude from Texas A&M University with a Bachelor's of Science degree in computer engineering. Welcome to the show, Dustin. Hey, thanks, Shelley. Thanks, Patrick. Um, Dustin, if you don't mind, could you share with our listeners a little bit about what Apex Clearing is? Yeah, of course. Uh, so Apex is a custodian. Uh, we provide clearing and custody services to many of the most disruptive fintechs, financial technology firms. Uh, offering brokerage and investment services. Uh, we've been around since about 2012. Um, our parent company, Peak Six, is based in Chicago. Uh, and Peak Six is a, it's sort of a family office that, with an interesting collection of companies, uh, many of which have disrupted the, uh, the investment landscape. Um, Apex specifically, we provide uh, financial services um, software as a service, basically a, a SaaS platform, APIs for uh, opening brokerage accounts, buying and selling securities, trading, holding those securities. And many of our technologies were uh, quite disruptive, uh, including fractional share offering and instant uh, account opening. I love the concept around the, the fractional share, right? Could you explain that a little bit further? Yeah. So, you know, rewind, I don't know, um, five or six years ago. And the only way to buy uh, securities, stocks, uh, it was in whole share increments. And so you could buy one or two or 10 or 100 or 1,000 shares of any given any given stock. And so if, um, if a stock uh, like, I don't know, Ford is five or $6 a share and you've got 100 bucks, well, that's great. You could buy 15 or 20 shares of Ford. Um, if you've got, uh, you know, a hundred dollars, uh, but a stock like, um, Amazon, which trades at $3,000 a share or, or Google, which is like $1,800 a share, or even Facebook at $300 a share. Uh, if all you have is a hundred dollars to your name, you can't own those, what we call blue chip stocks. If you have to buy in whole share increments and over the course of, I guess the last hundred years of, of trading, uh, in the stock market or a couple hundred years, really, um, 
some stocks would split in order to lower the share price, which didn't change the overall value. Uh, you know, if it was a two for one or a three for one or a five for one or a 10 for one split, it's just, it's simple math. Uh, but that would turn the share price down to something quite a bit smaller that, you know, would be more accessible. Um, now, fast forward to really just a couple of years ago and fractional trading of shares, being able to buy a third of a share of Amazon or a third of a share, a quarter of a share of, of Facebook uh, is actually possible now. And in fact, we often talk about it in terms of notional value instead of fractional value. So instead of saying, I want to buy one tenth uh, of, a, of a share of Tesla, you would say, I want to buy a hundred bucks of Tesla, figure it out, like whatever that means. Uh, and so Apex provides a, an API for real-time trading, buying and selling notional and fractional values of about 6,000 different symbols um, in real time, meaning instantly your order is filled by or sell within milliseconds, uh, as opposed to rolling it up with a, a whole bunch of other orders and placing a, a bigger order for hundreds of shares in a, in a larger lot. Hmm. Yeah. The, uh, the image that comes to mind for me is, uh, you remember the movie swingers? <laughs> of course. <laughs> when I, when I go to the uh, money, you don't even know it. <laughs> but, like they go to the casino and they sit down, they've got like a hundred dollars and it's like $25 a hand. And he's like, double down. You always double down. <laughs> like, but I only have $25 left. <laughs> Like, so how do you do that? Like, of course, it's like, okay, so let's go to the, the you know, let's go to the, the lower uh, cost tables. But like for some of that, right, especially out in Vegas, there's, you know, it's great when you can find a $5 table, but they're always packed. Yeah. Right? The $5 tables, you know, uh, I'm not much of a gambler. So I, I go to just have fun. So I'd, I'd never really go to the, the big pots. They're, they're, it's too much. It's crazy to think that's the guy behind the Mandalorian uh, now, John Favreau. <laughs> you know, it is. Yeah, what a fantastic career, right? Oh my God, it's amazing! So it, you know, uh, so much distance between that and Rudy. If you remember, like, <laughs> yeah, I, of course. That's really where all that started with him and uh, uh, what's his face, Vince Vaughn, with mm -hmm. uh, Rudy. Anyways, we're not here to talk about Rudy. Uh, <laughs> much to my dismay, and uh, I quit. I think I've told the story before it's like my roommates in college threw my copy of Rudy out the window um hmm. I watched it every night after going out <laughs> drinking so and then uh, favorite scene in Goon is when he walks up to the girl and she's crying he's like why are you crying did you just watch Rudy and it's like yes of course that's when you cry uh, I do want to talk about uh you know the industry itself right uh you know clearing custody like you mentioned you know there's a lot of established uh, you guys are being disruptive in, in something that's, you know, one of those really very established industries. You know, it seems to be a bit of your your pattern of your careers. You know, I, is that something you just enjoy? Do you enjoy the, 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 the friction of that type of environment? I love the opportunity around being an underdog. Uh, and so I, it, it is a bit of a, a theme of my career to, to start with the underdog and, and, and work, work our way up. Um, at Apex, you know, we're, we're well established. We're behind hundreds of clients, um, Stash, uh, M1 based there in Chicago, where, where you are, Ally, eToro, SoFi, Weeble, you know, these are our clients. We're a B2B. Uh, and every single one of those are, are brokers or brokerages that are catering to 
a new audience. We talk about millennials or um, or, or just sort of younger investors. Uh, younger investors are, are engaged in a really exciting market at a really interesting time in ways that you know I, I just I wasn't 20 years ago. Uh, you know, in in my early 20s. Um, and I think that's I think that's awesome. I think that's inspiring. And I think part of what we provide at, at Apex uh, are the the real time, low cost, disruptive fintech tools necessary for those financial advisors and those brokerages uh, to offer what they do, a mobile experience, a real time instant experience uh, and the ability for people with just a couple hundred dollars uh, to actually begin their their investment journey. And yeah, it is a little bit of an underdog story, I think, in that um, you know the, the 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 Charles Schwabs and the Fidelities and the the, the much bigger brokers, um, you know, the Morgan Stanleys and and so forth, uh, E Trade, TD, you know, they they've been around for for many decades, and uh, to some extent, the the infrastructure and the tooling and the experience shows, uh, and so where we are being disruptive is in providing that instant dynamic modern experience and the response has been tremendous from a, a newer younger wave of investors that's great and that whole democratization as you talked about uh you know we've spoken about before that making it so that it's easier to engage right so the traditional you know the way it's been done for like forever right and then they move to a web platform, but it really, in essence, didn't change much. It was just, you know, removing that broker level resource. Um, and if I was a better podcast host, I would have been able to stitch together the Rudy thing to the underdog thing a little bit better. I mean, it was just laying there and I left it. I feel bad. Maybe we'll re I'll re I thought that's where you're going. I thought but, that's you know, where you're going. It's sometimes just genius by accident. That's all I can tell you. Right. Like it's it's not intentional. It's just, you know, the brain's moving faster than the mouth, if you can believe that. Well, how about the the real life, Rudy, Sarah Fuller? I mean, just what an amazing story. I've got two daughters and we've watched uh, we've watched her play football over these last couple of weekends. My my eight year old asked me, uh, I don't know, maybe six months ago or at the beginning of the football season. Hey, dad, can girls play football? And, you know, it was a, kind of an uncomfortable. Yeah, of course. Uh, but boy, I mean. Sarah Fuller, Vanderbilt, just yeah, amazing, yeah, amazing, yeah. It's interesting that that whole concept and like, um, I my boy stepped away from football this year, and honestly, I was kind of relieved. I mean, those it, it's big, it's fast, it's bigger and faster than it's ever been. It's just, uh, you know, it's 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 impressive that she's out there, and uh, you know, I, I think uh, it'll be interesting to see what comes of that next, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things we talked about that uh, from the previous conversation was that concept of, of visionary, right? Like what is a visionary, what does a visionary look like inside? Right? I, I think visionaries are, are people that sometimes struggle with being inside of an organization, but it's something that you've been able to successfully do. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on like, what have you done to make that obviously competent, capable, all of those things. There's plenty of those folks out there that are competent and capable and still sometimes aren't successful at, at staying true to that being a visionary. What are some of the things that, you know, what's your rules, what's your philosophy, what's your approach? Hmm. Yeah, it's a it's an insightful question. Uh, I think if I could find a younger version of myself um, and give myself some advice, uh, I think I would tell I would tell me to stick with those controversial ideas, those those early ideas 
and don't get frustrated when other people don't see it quite the way you see it at that time. Um, I spent the first eight years of my career at IBM as a software engineer here in Austin, Texas. I worked on uh, Linux from the very early days of IBM and investing in Linux uh, in the Linux Technology Center um, as a sort of an outlet for creativity, which is not something you, you get to do a whole lot of as a very junior engineer in a, a very big company. Um, IBM had this tremendous program for uh, innovation through its software patents. Uh, and the, these were the early years of the, the patent wars between IBM and Microsoft and some of the other uh, software companies. Uh, and especially around open source, it was about IBM carving out some, some space for Linux and the other open source projects to, to be able to operate. Um, and IBM was quite defensive with the patents. And so I did a, I did a lot of work filing patents. I, I think I filed 75 patents in, in just a couple of years, wow. two or three years. And some of those are, you know, really interesting technologies that, you know, you might recognize today. Uh, the thing that I, I wish I would have done a, a bit more of was to have stuck with some of those inventions and, and really tried to see some of those through. Um, I think I got better at that in, in my career, especially as I moved into product management, where you actually have the opportunity. I've found the opportunity to cross over from the pure engineering ideation, the creation, but also creating the business and the business model and the, the, the products and the, the pricing and the marketing and the, the go to market around it. Uh, I've found product management to be quite fulfilling from that perspective. Interesting. And as you, that product manager, right, you, you mentioned you've expanded your, your sphere of influence of sorts, right? So it, it's not so much the uh, chain of command, but really having influence outside of just topping what's up, what's above you and what's below you. So if you could share a little bit more about that as well. Product management is an, an interesting uh, discipline in that, well, I'll start here. Uh, there's no degree in product management, none, none really right. to speak of, right? Uh, not yet. Not yet. I mean, clearly, yeah, there's got to be at some point. I, you know, it would make for an interesting MBA or some sort of MBA engineering sort of cross degree. Um, Uh-oh. But well, uh, uh oh, what? Uh oh, we're not talking MBAs again. Uh -oh. That's a whole other deal. <laughs> um, yeah, but, well, I wasn't going to go there, Patrick. <laughs> um, sorry, sorry for that. <laughs> that's all right. Yeah, I mean, I often say no one ever goes to their sixth grade, what do you want to be when you grow up, and say, I want to be a product manager uh, when you grow up. There, there's no mint that makes uh, product managers. There's no degree that anoints product managers. Uh, and so it's a it's an interesting, someone's path to product management, it's always one of my interview questions when I'm interviewing product managers. You know, how, how did you become a product manager? And there's a lot of insight to be derived from what drew someone through their career and their experiences into, um, into product. One of the important things about a product manager is that we rarely uh, manage people. It's not a position where power is derived from how many reports, right? It's not the the typical. Uh, it's not like a military position where you know you've got you've got a chain of command. Uh, it's also quite different from a typical software company in the United States. Uh, you know where there's a hierarchy of first line managers and then second line managers and directors and and, and VPs. Typically, uh, a product manager owns uh, a has to own a vision, you know, we started with what 
the discussion room, uh, the visionary, that's part of it. And they've got to realize that vision typically without people reporting to them. Uh, and so the thing that product managers have to master is the art of influence, being able to influence uh, people and lots of really different people and an engineer, teams of engineers, uh, a, a sales person or a, a team of salespeople, a marketing team, and then eventually the, the industry, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's a matter of communicating uh, the product vision, the market opportunity when talking to journalists, analysts, um, podcasters such as yourself, you know, it's a, it's an interesting dynamic role from that perspective. And it's all about the influence that, that a product manager has uh, that determines whether they, you know, are, are their product is successful or not. Uh, and then the success of their product is, is often tied to the success of that product manager. So how do you go about that? How do you build relationships? You know, what, I know it's different in every organization, but what advice would you give? Yeah, it is about the relationships. Um, invest in those early and often. Um, expanding that sphere of influence. The a sphere goes in three directions, right? Up, down, left, right, in, in every direction. It's not just about working with managing up the executives above you, which is, uh, that's the first thing that a, a super ambitious, upward moving product manager who wants to be, you know, the next um, VP or the next CEO of, of, of the company. Um, too often, those product managers will, will focus a little bit too much on the just the upward radius. Um, there's also the the downward radius, working through the entire organization, getting to know the the interns and the new hires, um, some some coaching, uh, some learning from them. In fact, you know, hey, what where are your problems? Where where do you see uh, issues with the architecture of of the of the of the solution or the code? Uh, and then moving outward, so up, down, and then outward, out into the other parts of the org, sales, marketing, immediately come to mind because, you know, as a product manager, you're obviously trying to build a product that you can sell and you're obviously trying to build a product uh, that you can you can get out there and, and market. Um, but but don't stop there. You know, it's the support organization. It's the operations. It's IT. It's security. You know, these these are also stakeholders of product. And so building relationships with every one of those uh, those people and those teams, it's it's a, it's essential. If this sounds a little bit like like the CEO, that's the way you know Ben Horowitz and, and others describe the product manager. You have to be the CEO of your product. Uh, it it is absolutely, and you know I, I take that to heart. And I think good product managers generally uh, take that advice. You know, really own and be the CEO of your product, of your little world. Uh, take that to heart. And it doesn't matter how big or small the product is, you can run it. You know, uh, like a company. Think through the P and L. Think through the um, the growth. Um, and, and what it's going to take to get there. That's great advice. Thank you. I was thinking as you're, you're talking about that, you know, that, that line of ascension, right? You mentioned going from VP to CEO. I think, you know, historically, and uh, uh, my perception, I'm not saying this is right. My perception was that salespeople became the CEO. Uh, is your perception that like, in, as we move more and uh, most organizations are moving more towards that product centric, Especially, especially if you're looking at a digital platform of like moving from like that project to product mentality. But, you know, do you see that currently as a norm in certain industries? Do you see that becoming more of a norm in other industries where the elevation from VP of product is to go to CEO as opposed to 
more just I, I just curious of your perspective. Um, yeah, so I, I think at least in Silicon Valley, the the path from product manager through the ranks to CEO is pretty well documented. Um, Sundar Pichai is the CEO of, of Alphabet, of Google. Uh, he was the product manager uh, for Chrome, the web browser, uh, once upon a time. Um, Marissa Mayer, the, uh, the, the former CEO of, of Yahoo, uh, was the product manager for the search bar uh, inside, of, inside of Google once upon a time. Um, Satya Nadella, Microsoft's CEO, also a, f- a former product manager uh, at, at Microsoft. So, you know, at, that, those are software examples. Those are big software companies. Um, but that, that path is, is pretty well established um, at, at, at this point. I don't know that that exists quite so much in financial services or you know the the the, the fintech industry yet. But as fintech becomes more tech, I think to some extent it's inevitable that product managers end up you know at least with a seat at the table. Um, and I certainly value that. I love that about where I am in the in the apex org, where product is in the apex org, uh, apex organization. Um, you know we uh, are. I'm part of the executive committee. Uh, my product managers present to the executive team um, on a weekly basis about the, the projects and the products that we're working on. And that that's part of that sphere of influence, you know, m- me helping develop my team and my people and ensuring that they have the exposure to the executive team and the board of directors. Um, and that they also have the, the buy-in uh, and the support of the executives that are their, ultimately their, their stakeholders. If somebody was interested in making that cut over to being more of a product fo- focused person, and yes, it, it, like you mentioned, there's there's not like a clear path of like of education or how does somebody get involved? How would you recommend people? You know, if somebody was involved in you know either more of the engineering side or maybe project management side or not at all involved in like digital product development. How would you suggest they get started in product management specifically? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it takes a. Uh, to me, the 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 makeup of a successful product manager in my spheres, and this may differ for 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 different uh, types of companies. But I've spent most of my career in software, specifically software as a service or, or SaaS type type platforms. Um, it, it begins with a an engineering mindset, and that might be an engineering degree, like like you know, I, I graduated in computer engineering. Um, it could be the equivalent experience, five or ten, you know, whatever time frame uh, one needs working as an engineer, maybe a developer, maybe, um, you know, a, a, an engineering manager. But it really takes that that foundation, that bedrock typically to build off of. Now, there are ways to compensate and overcompensate for that, uh, but that's usually the starting point. But there comes a point where there's a crossover from being a, a a, a problem solver and dealing with finite, discrete problems that have uh, hard, real solutions uh, to looking at business problems, which often aren't so discrete. They they aren't so 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 perfect. Um, in fact, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of ambiguity, and a typical product manager mindset will sort of straddle, be able to straddle both of those. Understand the the engineering and the technology and the, the mathematical problems that have mathematical solutions, uh, but also the, the business side of things, which often has more subjective, uh, often softer solutions, multiple solutions, in fact, and being able to play 
the heuristic or the statistical game uh, that one has to, to play in order to, to pre- create business solutions. So having just a little bit of that business savvy is the, the first step, I think, in the crossover into, into the, the product management um, space. Um, and then there's sort of a third leg to the stool that is the, the thing that I think brings it all together. And it really comes with the communication skills. And sometimes that's the outgoing type A personality, that the, the, the speaking, you know, the, the speaking engagement. And then it could be on stage, on a keynote, on a podcast, but uh, talking to a, a journalist or an analyst. Um, but it doesn't always have to manifest itself in, uh, in, in sort of an, an extroverted sense. Uh, there's lots of product managers who are quite good at the communications side of things and take a, a more introverted approach. Um, and that involves lots of clear writing uh, and communication and other forms of, of communication. Um, that piece is, the I think, the third and, and final piece that I usually look for when, when hiring, building, developing product managers. Um, an engineering mindset, some business savvy, and then uh, impeccable communication skills. Very cool. It's that's not an easy three legs of a stool to find, right? That's that's like three superpowers all in one. So, I mean, it, just that whole middle part on the business savvy of like being able to strategically analyze a landscape that some you can see, some you can't even see, some you make up in your head just to because that's got to be that that ninja move of like how do we get around the entire industry? Like, what is it that people aren't doing? That mm. be doing. Uh, it seems like a huge challenge the, mm. for the people that like people who are like who like doing puzzles and things like that, right? Like enjoy that kind of complexity. Uh, I would think it, it'd be like a dream job. I, yeah, to me, it's a it is a dream job. I, I love. I genuinely love product product management. I enjoy coding. I enjoy writing code. Uh, you know, I'll I'll still find a problem to solve on a weekend, and I'm teaching my daughters to code. Um, but I get a whole different level of fulfillment out of the product management uh, exercises and, and just that discipline. To me, it's beyond, it's a step past designing, developing the solution and actually putting it into people's hands uh, in one form or another. That, that's the rest of the cycle that personally I was missing from, you know, commit code, push code to a GitHub repository and now my job is done. That was that was sort of you know where it ended from a from a for me from a developer standpoint, the product manager mindset for me is taking that and now putting a putting it on a shelf somewhere and that that's uh, I mean that from uh, a figurative sense you know but it, in the real world, product managers do put physical things you know on on shelves and you know that's um it's a it's a it's a slightly different world but it's it's the it's the full cycle. That's great. Shelly, I guess uh, I, I'm going to leave it to you to ask that last question. Um, well, I, I mean, one of the other questions we, we like to ask, you know, who, who inspires you? Who's been your mentor over the years? Yeah, um, great question. Wow, so many. Uh, I'll answer both of those, actually. So uh, where do I go to learn? I'm a voracious reader. I love reading. In fact, it's one of the things that I miss a little bit in the stay-at-home pandemic world in that my reading time was on planes. And I, I typically flew 100 to 150 flights per year. And a couple of years ago, I just, I turned off the Wi-Fi. I quit fighting around with 
go-go in-flight Wi-Fi and dropping connection. <laughs> it's just such a disaster. I gave up on it. And I said, you know what? I got two, three, four, five, sometimes eight or ten hours. I'm I'm not watching the movies. I'm going to read. And uh, that was maybe 2016. And as of 2016, I hit a new high point of 50, 60, 70 books a, a year, you know, a book, a book a week, basically. Um, and that, that slowed down a little bit in the pandemic because, you know, I'm, I'm home, which is nice, but I got two little girls that want and deserve all the attention in the world. And <laughs> there's just not as much time to, to sit back and crack a book. Uh, but that's, that's always been important to me. Uh, Patrick, in the, in the prep for this podcast, you mentioned the hard thing about hard things, uh, uh, Ben Horowitz book. I'd read a couple of years ago. I went back and reread that one this, um, this past Friday, um, fantastic book one of my favorites uh, I, yeah what a what a great manual you know how to how to be a ceo or how to be a ceo of your product you know ben horowitz was a product manager he talks about that uh in his book he was the product manager for uh for mozilla uh at, at at one point in his career so from that perspective you know i i do i do really love uh love reading and it's almost entirely nonfiction. Being somewhat new to the financial services industry, I've tried to crank through a, a bunch of books and try, typically the books that our uh, investors might have read, you know, just in, in what are they trying to get into their head? What are they expecting out of an investment platform? Um, and some of those are, you know, the older books that have been around for decades and generations, you know, the Benjamin Grahams and the Random Walk Down Wall Street and, you know, just sort of the timeless classics. Um, some or are the you know the 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 more recent the Joel Greenblatt's or um, or uh, Burton Malkiel you know these these are just sort of the the investors or econ economics professors uh, Thomas Piketty's uh, Capital in the Twenty First Century was the the last book I read before that um, I, I find these fascinating and it's a way of just you know getting getting to know this this industry a little bit better very cool. Very cool. Yeah, it's a it's a pattern we see time and time again, right? Um, leaders are are learners, right? And like you, you got to constantly invest in it. I, I do share your same situation of like uh, I, I used to drive uh, a lot, so that's when I'd listen to books on. Right there, you go. Audible. I love Audible. I know people are like, "Oh, it's not real reading." I'm like, "Yeah, you know, you do you." I do a uh, so, bit of I do a bit of both. I, I I love Audible as well. I've subscribed to Audible for years and cranked through the credits. Um, but I mean, you can see the bookshelf behind me. I've I've got a bookshelf full of full of books here. Uh, some books I read both. Uh, I'll I'll do the Audible and then I'll do the the physical or vice versa. Uh, and you know, some are just I, I really want to get everything I can out of it. Yeah, I think there's some books like to your point. I always think like there's some books you just have to study, right? Where it's like there's yep. so much good stuff in there where it's like one different times, times in, not in your or, life too. Um, you know, it, it sometimes it's a matter of it meant something to you at one point in your life, but four, five, six years later, the world's changed, your careers changed. You know, <laughs> it's true. I was trying to explain to my kids we were making rockets. You know, those model rockets that you can launch, and I, I said, you know, when I was your age, I just hustle through it just because I want to make the thing go up and explode. <laughs> but when you get older, like you actually spend time packing the parachute the right way, putting wadding in there. Right. And it's like, uh, but when I was their age, it would have been like 15 minutes after I bought the rocket, it's up in the air. Right. All burned. Up, yeah. Destroyed. Yeah. Right. But you know, 
Well, I mean, what an interesting time to be alive, especially I'm, I'm not into model rockets. I know people who are, but you know, right now with SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, just the, the things, the things going on, uh, blue origin in the world, there's like, there's something real and tangible about the model rocket and then, uh, inspiring a kid, you know, to, 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 to learn math, learn physics, learn science and, you know, what, what the world is going to look like, especially from, uh, just the, the space industry in five or 10 years is we're not going to recognize it. Um, Patrick Shelley, I, I think, I think there's, there's some really exciting things that's going to happen right there. Mm -hmm. I, you know, my son did mention, he's like, he's looking at, so he's in high school. He's thinking, I asked where you want to go to school for. He's like astronomical aeronautical. And I'm like, really still a thing and then i thought of, you know what i mean like i think we there hasn't been a whole lot of innovation there which then of course to your point means it's ripe for disruption anything where it's like it's been a little bit uh you know but yeah to your point uh, clearly the last couple of years have been very exciting with all those uh new developments so it's a, it's an exciting world in many ways well then i've got to put a plug in for my alma mater then for your son if he's interested in the aeronautics industry texas a&m university one of the one of the only uh, public universities in the country with a land, sea, and space grant. And I've got a couple of friends who went through the aerospace engineering uh, program at Texas A&M and College Station and um, have had awesome careers at NASA uh, and in the private sector as well. That's cool. That's cool. You know, I made a decision to go north for college. I think I'm going to give him some wisdom about not making that same choice. There are schools south of Chicago. I didn't know that. And so uh, heading up to the, the great white tundra of Green Bay was, you know, I love my school, but, you know, it wasn't nice to see the sun for 70% of my college career. You know, that would have been a bonus. <laughs> but, yeah, it's uh, he's thinking Purdue. He loves the idea of Purdue, just but There you go. But, yeah. Good old engineering school, for well, sure. I, I mean, a lot of great schools out there. So, Awesome. Well, I appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, it's really awesome what you're doing. Really great that you shared your, your background and your experience. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, I love connecting with uh, with good people, Shelly. Uh, Patrick, thank you very much. And uh, you know, to your listeners, I, I appreciate your attention. Um, it's It means a lot to me and the people around me to, to be able to tell our story. Thank you, Dustin. Thank you. We also want to thank our listeners. Thank you for tuning in. And we really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears slash podcast or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32. 